Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with uh, the New Books Network, the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of that uh, of those podcasts. Uh, and I'm here today talking with uh, Katya Single, who has written a new book on called From Chernobyl uh, with Love, which is quite a rousing memoir. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, could you uh, start off by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, you know, where you went to school or what you studied, maybe uh, some background on how you came to write such a book as this? Yeah, I actually, I'm born and raised in California, despite the name Katya. Um, and I ended up going to University of California at San Diego for college. And it was there I saw and this was back in the late 90s, so I saw a print advertisement for a position uh, in the former Soviet Union, and that was where I took my first job in Latvia, and then from there went to Ukraine, and that's where this book comes about. Since then, I've uh, done uh, work mostly as a reporter, full-time and freelance overseas, and in the U.S. and Kentucky, full-time for a number of years, teachers, and now I'm based back in California and do freelance and write books and teach journalism part-time at uh, California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so your your original connection to Eastern Europe, I gathered from the book, was uh, not not really long planned. It just kind of happened, right? Yeah, I uh, I was not. I had interned at a newspaper in San Diego, and I was going to be graduating. And my plan, as it was, was to go write scripts in Hollywood. I think or work as a stunt double. I didn't have um, a lot of. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of concrete plans. And then I, I just saw this ad for um, newspaper reporters needed in the former Soviet Union. And it just sounded so exciting and a bit of a challenge. And I thought, well, why not all apply? And I think when I applied, I wasn't really thinking I'd get the job. So it was one of those, you're young, you just do something and don't really think about the consequences. And then it happened. And then I thought, well, okay, I don't have any other job offers because I hadn't really applied anywhere else because I still had a little time before I graduated. And then I thought, well, I guess I should do it. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to be a studio bass player before I uh, went to college. And here I am as a college professor. So, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's those odd career tracks. Uh, what, what in particular? So, if you're, you know, interest in Eastern Europe was uh, was kind of unexpected. What, what do you think it was that drew you to journalism more generally, and you know, then and now? Yeah, I think curiosity. Well, I'd always been into writing, and even since I was a very young child, I used to dictate stories to babysitters. So I always liked writing, and then I got into journalism as a way. Um, Back when I was doing it, it was a good way to make a living as a writer, never high pain or anything, but more reliable. And once I started in journalism, I was just curious about everything. And so it was, an, it was a nice match for me. 
I think Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union in particular, because I did grow up 80s era, it was it was a mystery. It was closed off. And so it was something I think there I had general curiosity about. I'd never exactly planned to go to that region of the world, but I had definitely as a child growing up because you heard limited stories from that area area of the world. There was this mystery still about it. And even in um, 1998, when I left, it still we weren't getting a whole lot of information from there. And because it had been this mystery when I was a child, I think that kind of the idea of exploring fit nicely. And it seemed like a great place to be a journalist because I felt like there still wasn't a lot of information in the West. We were hearing about that. I, I was wondering if I could ask you a kind of general question about, uh, you know, I, I'm a historian by trade. And as I was I was reading your, your book, it occurred to me that the historian's view of, of things kind of happens from the hot air balloon uh, uh, level. Uh, you know, historians naturally, you know, tend to kind of take the long view. And so I guess what I was wondering is, do you have any thoughts on what what historians can learn from journalists who are kind of there on the ground? I'm sure you'll have some stories for us later about being there uh, on the ground. But I was just thinking that, you know, kind of at the theoretical level, you know, where do you think historians could learn uh, some useful things from a journalist kind of perspective? Oh, that's a great question. I think actually a lot with from journalists, you get the real people. So a lot of times journalists are talking to regular people. And I think maybe with historians, and I'm not an expert on this at all because I'm not a historian, but uh, it might be sometimes you're you're reading more official histories and in, in more top down from government or people in power, whereas the journalists sometimes are just the regular day-to-day people. And it can look very different because I was recently, there was a talk uh, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall they did at our university. And they had a number of, of people with experience from around then and um, the the regions and things. And it was interesting to hear kind of the global perspective. And, and we saw more stories this um, at this 30-year anniversary of, uh, on the legacy of the Berlin Wall and all uh, fall of communism and all these things that the, the story we kind of got here in the West, oh, it was great. There was this euphoria, but we missed that it was actually very difficult on the ground for a number of years, almost even a decade for a lot of those countries as the adjustment or even in East Germany, how um, how things were afterwards. And I think having those um, stories where you have more just the regular people talking about in reality, what that was like, not the big picture of, yes, there was this euphoria, there was this thing, but what, what that meant after the the big celebration happened just day to day. Maybe that's the difference, the day to day. I think journalists can get uh, a good glimpse of for historians. Oh, thank you. I was just, I was curious to see what you might, uh, what you might think about that. So from that that on the ground perspective then I was wondering if you could just riff for a while on and what was it like to be in the Ukraine there uh, in the, the the period you were there the, uh, the orange revolution and so on yeah it was um so I was in Latvia in 98 so I think I arrived in Ukraine about 2000 2003 or so so in the build up to the orange revolution wasn't there right at the orange revolution but I was there beforehand what had happened was um the the 
President Kuchma at the time had been implicated in the murder of a journalist who had been critical of the government. And so they, we started launching into these pre- protests and then those died down and got up again and eventually kind of led towards that Orange Revolution later. So it was a very interesting time in the country. Uh, I think first, when I was first there, before all all those government things, there was just, well, while I was there also, um, Chernobyl nuclear power plant uh, officially closed, the, the reactor that was still operating. Uh, there were a lot of kind of historic events going on. And then there was also, yeah, day-to-day life for people, I think, outside of, I was in Kiev, the capital. And so you pretty much um, where I lived, I lived in a nice neighborhood, I, I, uh, water most of the time, electricity most of the time, but you go to a couple hours outside the capital, you're still um, water electricity shortages where you'd have some places you'd only have electricity for two hours uh, sometime in the night and water two hours sometime in the day. And so people have to be home when the water is on so you can fill up your bathtub so you have water for the rest of the day and you don't always know when that water is going to come on uh, and extreme um, unemployment issues and just kind of when things collapsed it took a long time to build things back up so I think I was still there in that time when uh, there was a lot of difficult transition for regular people and in life could be pretty difficult especially again, outside capitals always seem to fare better, but in the more rural areas or even not that rural, but just outside of the capital. So, uh, um, you had any, you know, your book is full of good stories. So, uh, you have any, you know, particularly good stories from that period that you'd like to share, just, you know, interviews you did that you thought were particularly, uh, interesting or poignant in some way? Yeah, I think, well, the book is officially a memoir. I wanted, I used myself as a hook, but I really wanted it to be about some of the really interesting people I met, especially as a reporter. Some just um, living there, the people I met, but more as a reporter. And I think the strength of a lot of those people is one thing that sticks out. Let me see, ones in particular. Um, I think there was, it was interesting for me, because although I, I'm not a historian, I always am, am attracted to kind of oral histories a bit. And there was a survivor of the artificial famine um, when Stalin basically uh, that kind of had created a famine in Ukraine where there was actually food, but it was kept from the people and um, kind of going with trying to do collectivization and all those things that uh, I'd read a book, um, there's some great books on that, but it's still something that because uh, even while Stalin was alive, no one talked about it. And even after his death, people didn't talk about it. And so survivors of the famine, their stories weren't told that much. So there's not as much awareness of it. And I remember interviewing this woman and t- her telling me about, um, she lost her whole family. They all starved to death, except I think she was the only survivor. And then I ended up interviewing another woman whose um, parents had been enforcing. They were they had come over from Moscow to enforce um, the how do you say it? Uh, 
the restrictions on Ukraine in such an, I remember asking her, because I was curious, she was a child at the time, if she was aware of what was going on. And I remember to this day, she insists there was no famine and that uh, people just ate bark because they liked the taste of it. And they ate birds because they liked the taste of the birds and no one was starving. And it, I don't know if she actually believes that or if it's just the only way she can come to terms with what role her family played in that. I, I, it was interesting for me to know. I, I kept trying to ask her the questions again, well, you know, and I'd ask specific, like, well, why were people eating bark, things like that? And she'd just say, well, because they liked it. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a denial that she even can recognizes or if it's just her way of coping. It was, That's interesting for me. So a lot of the stories were hard ones like that. Um, I think when I went in Eastern Ukraine, I did a story about coal miners and I actually went down uh, a mine and then talking to, it was interesting for me because the coal mining situation, it it was very difficult. There was um, no money to pay the miners. So sometimes the miners would get paid (laughs) One month, they'd get a bunch of slippers, another, and everyone would have slippers then. Yeah. And then it's useless because if everyone has slippers, they're worthless because you can't exchange them for anything and and you only need so many slippers. So there was this one miner I met and he was really innovative. He actually um, was raising bunnies so he could pay his miners with bunnies. So at least they'd have something to eat. So he couldn't give them money because there was no money. But he'd figured out, okay, I'll raise bunnies, and then they'll have meat um, and bunnies. And so he was a really interesting guy and uh, difficult. I remember he he wouldn't let me go down the mine originally because I was a woman, and women are bad luck in mines, I kept getting told. But eventually he was the one who let me go down one of his mines. I think he also was worried for safety reasons because they do have a lot of safety issues in the mines. He could get in big trouble if something happened to me. Um, but luckily, nothing did. <laughs> I, I guess it takes a certain amount of uh, inherent bravery to do these things. So I didn't get the impression from your book that you were too worried about going down there. You know, looking back, I think uh, I'm not sure if it's bravery so much as extreme youth. <laughs> I was still yeah. in my early 20s. And looking back, I'm like, why did I do that? It's almost that you don't you don't you think differently when you're young. I, I, you don't really fully think things through in some ways. On that one, I think I also, I really, when I'm trying to get a story, I'm really into getting a story and and seeing the holes. And like, if I'm writing about minors, I really feel I need to, in their conditions, I feel I need to see it. And then it didn't really strike me until I actually was going down it wow, do I really want to go down a mine that has really bad conditions just so I can see them? So I think the fear came later because I was so distracted by just getting the story and um, doing the best job by actually showing what people are going through. And then I realized, oh, wait a sec, what that means. I I feel, looking back, I feel most um, bad about dragging uh, the translator I worked with the most, Svieta, into a lot of these things because at least I was getting a story out of it. She was just having to do whatever I did and help translate. So she kind of got roped into a, a lot of things that maybe she wouldn't have liked doing either. You know, the, I lived in uh, Vladimir there uh, a couple hours outside of Moscow back in the summer of um, 
oh, let's see here. It would have been 2003, I think. And uh, they used to, um, where I'm headed here is, is your, your comments there on mine safety. Um, and I, I used to watch guys welding uh, without any helmets on, uh, welding a sewer and drain pipes together under, under the streets. You know, they were just staring straight into an arc welder. And uh, I remember also seeing a guy hanging off the side of a big building in Moscow on this little, um, and it was like one of those seats you see on a kid's swing where you've got a, a rope through the end of a ends of a two by six. And he's just sitting there on that thing, like 40 stories in the air. And I, uh, the lady I was lived with, uh, uh, at, the, at the time there in, uh, in Vladimir, she had this son who was oh probably in his mid forties, I suppose. And I mentioned it to him that, that, uh, uh, you know, everybody likes a good OSHA joke, but that seemed uh, perhaps going a little too far. And he gave me this big, long speech, which I only understood uh, a quarter of, about those wussy Americans, uh, <laughs> always so worried about safety and so on. I was, so I was, when I read that section of your book about going uh, down in the mine, I was wondering, is that, is that something you kind of noticed? Is that, is that a dynamic there that, you know, things like safety precautions, you know, uh, those are for those, uh, uh, those wimps elsewhere, you know, is that, is that a, cultural dynamic that you saw? I think there was a little of that, um, that it was, yeah, life's, life's hard. It's a little more difficult and we can endure it. We're tougher than, um, Americans who, yeah, even in Ukraine, they would, um, when I told them I'd lived in Latvia for a while, they were like, oh, they had it easy. Latvia, that was like uh, a vacation. <laughs> yeah. So even under, they were talking under, um, Soviet times and he, well, Love it wasn't exact part, but even Soviet bloc countries versus those under, and they were their idea was they hadn't suffered as much. So there is something also too about this stoic endurance of suffering and um, uh, pride in that a little bit. I think that that is a little of a culture um, with the minds. I think there also was though there just wasn't um, materials. There wasn't one of the reasons they were unsafe is they didn't have enough materials to. Um, prop them up. There was just, again, those, the economic situation was so bad that people would take, and then and the miners would put up with these things because it was a job, even though it didn't pay, they sometimes got slippers or pennies, you know, it was something. So I think it was the severe economic depression too, that, that led to some of the risk taking and some of the lack of safety, I think. Yeah. And there just weren't the standards. I don't think anyone was really overseeing a lot of that. I remember before I went down in the mine, um, he, we were supposed to get the headlamps. And so I just grabbed one and put it on and grabbed some other materials. And then he's like, well, does your headlamp work? One of the mine miners asked me and I said, well, I don't know it because I just assumed if it's a headlamp and it was there in the equipment, it would work. And he's like, well, turn it on. And it didn't work. And we tried like five others before we found one that semi worked. So um, there things just were um, not here. Uh, we'd expect someone would have overseen that and made sure everything, if there was headlamps there, they work, those kind of things. Everything had just kind of fallen apart a bit, I think. And so um there was that. And then there was also that culture of we're tough. Yeah. Uh, we deal, we, we've survived under, um, you know, food shortages, lines for all these things we can endure, we can do this. So maybe 
And maybe you don't complain because there's no one to complain to uh, or there's no way to change it. Um, but yeah, I think there, there was some of that cultural attitude too. So I just wanted to make sure it's clear for the listeners. So people were actually stealing the reinforcing timbers out of the mine. That uh, no, I don't. I don't know if that was happening. There was um, definitely metal thievery going on. I think there just, oh, okay. there just weren't enough, and I'm not sure why. I think the uh, so I don't think no, I don't think anyone was actually stealing those from the mines. But there was in the, in the area where I was reporting on coal mining, most of the manhole covers. Most any other metal you'd see on the streets had been stolen and um, sold for scrap metal. You actually had to be careful walking, really look where you're going so you didn't fall through a, a manhole or anything like that because so much of that metal had been stolen. I don't think um, it was actually being taken from the mines. There just wasn't, there weren't enough to even use. And I don't know what that shortage was. I think it was just economic. The mines were in such bad shape. Like the mine um, guy who owned that one mine didn't have money to pay him. So he didn't have money to um, buy and and, um, replace those and and just support the mine as it should have been done. So, so kind of on that same theme, then, uh, you know, you talk to a lot of people who lived through the, you know, meltdown of the Chernobyl reactor and so on, and were involved in the cleanup. Like, so what's, what's people on the ground? What's, what's their perception of why that happened and how the cleanup was handled and so on? Uh, as for why it happened, I don't think I, I didn't get into that as much with most people. I got into more, but how the cleanup was handled. I mean, there was so much, I think the secrecy still was so, that was so difficult in so many ways because you had people, um, one of the people I worked with, he, he's from Chernobyl. He wasn't, he was living in Kiev at the time, which is about two hour drive away, but his sister, a younger sister, father were still living, um, in Chernobyl and he had a lot of family there. And, he learned about all of it through BBC, you know, no, no information was coming in or out. Buses weren't coming in and out. Things just stopped. They cut the phone lines. And so I think that, that, that still really affects people, how much they were in the dark and how they were lied to. And I think that led to distrust even now on any information you get about Chernobyl and for years afterwards, because how do you trust if you were initially lied to so much? So how do you then recognize the truth and what do you, um, that legacy I think was very detrimental when, when people were finally, um, bust out of Chernobyl, their stories that they tell about, uh, when they needed to stop along the way to get water, um, residents there not wanting to let them drink the water because they're thinking they're contaminated. So there were all these rumors because no one was giving the the facts and things. Uh, people just had to rely on rumors and that uh, then created these divisions too. There was a lot of mm, distrust among the evacuees and the places where they were taken. People tell about uh, whole villages relocated outside and then the villages had been close before, but then they get kind of um, split up. One village got split into two, resettled in two different areas and how even when I was there, so 86, like 15 years later, they still differentiated within one of these villages where 
part of a village from Chernobyl area had been resettled. They differentiated from the evacuees and the villagers who had been there before, and they still kind of lived separately. And there was there part of it was this fear of whether there was contamination or whatever, and part of it was also um, this feeling that the evacuees got treated better because uh, they they were given new homes, often badly constructed, um, and they were given special health care and things like that. And so then there was kind of this resentment that they were treated better. So there were just all these divisions. And I think most of that came out of all, all the lack of information. So then people make these assumptions and, and make um, these judgments because they didn't have the right information about what was going on. So that was it, sad for me to see that all those years later, those things, uh, along with, you know, any medical conditions or things, but just that, that legacy of the, the distrust and misinformation, how that had played out on everyone. Um, and then I think it, for me, what was surprising, and, and I wrote about that a lot and people have heard about it now, though, but what's surprising for me was that people still felt such an attachment to the land there um, and that there were people who went and moved back in, even though they weren't supposed to. There, there was an exclusion zone created around um, the, the power plant uh, where you were not supposed to live because it's contaminated land. And that even, I think one woman I interviewed, it wasn't even a year later that she moved back. And that was just how miserable she felt outside and how attached she had been to her land that she would do that and move back. I think that that was um, something that always stuck with me. And then also when it was uh, while I was there that they finally shut down, they were still getting 10, Ukraine was getting 10% of their electricity, I think at the time from uh, the remaining reactor uh, at the plant. And when they finally shut it down, 2000 or 2001, I, I never thought that people might be unhappy, but I realized because of electricity shortage already and that, and that uh, people who were working there, it was a, it was a good job. And I think a thousand people initially lost jobs. And so they were less worried about contamination or anything than that, like that, than just day-to-day survival. And that they would be losing a, a well-paid job and they'd have to relocate once again because uh, they had relocated after the disaster. And so they lived not in the village right there, but a little further away. And I think that was an element I never thought about from a distance. Um, but up close, when you hear those stories, that was a different element that um, was also important to hear. So something that... Uh, um that you mentioned a, li- a little bit ago, I, th- I thought it'd be worth expanding on a bit. You suggested uh, that, you know, people are kind of stoic about, about, you know, being lied to about what was happening and so on. And you, you observed at the end of the book that you thought that, that folks you talked to in the Ukraine simply expect to be lied to. And your perception is that Americans, uh, uh, you know, have somewhat different expectations. And so I was wondering, uh, maybe this is kind of a loaded question. I don't know, but do you think that's changing? You know, I think I think of the phenomenon of fake news and so on. I'm wondering if given your given your background in, in the Ukraine there, if you think that American attitudes towards the government and press are becoming more Ukrainian in, in some sense? I, I think, yeah, I, it was funny. As soon as you mentioned that, I was thinking, yeah, it's been, I, I think, 
things are changing so fast, and especially just recently, I would think there is less trust now. I think the difference is that we still expect to be able to trust government and institutions. So we still, we, we may not trust them currently and be disappointed in them, but we still believe that it is our right to be able to trust the government and the government works for us. Whereas I think, at least when I was there and post-Soviet, you didn't have that expectation that the government was really there for you or that you could trust it had your best interests in mind. And I think you really trusted people over institutions. And I think we're not quite there yet. I think people still in general believe the government is in general supposed to be trustworthy in looking out for people um, and that that's its role. And, and we still would refer to institutions over people a lot of times. Um, I, it definitely, I think, is we're questioning it more now and we're seeing it doesn't always pan out that way, but at core, we still expect it should. I think we're a little more optimistic on that and that it, it's still, we believe it's our right to have a government that works for us. And I think when I was there in Ukraine, I don't think, I think a lot of people had kind of given up on that. They didn't think they had that right. Um, I remember when Ukrainian uh, journalist who worked, I worked at an English language newspaper for quite a while. And he wrote later about what it was like for him working around um, uh, Western journalists. And he, he talked about one press conference he went to and a, a reporter from Reuters who was a Western reporter, uh, the government spokesperson had said something and the reporter questioned them back. And, and he said he just would have never thought to question them because that wasn't his right to question the government. They weren't there to serve him. They were kind of, it was, it was a different attitude. So, well, I think unfortunately, yeah, we are at a point where our government, we're seeing um, things we're not happy with and we do have some just distrust. Uh, we still, in general, it, and if you take it over to journalism too, that's why fake news works is that people in general trust. They don't believe they're being served propaganda. They in general trust whatever they read. They don't look at the source or where it's coming from or how it's being researched. So I think we we are more trusting in general and aren't as jaded yet, but maybe we're, we're going to learn to be a little more skeptical and to actually look at where information is coming from and not just kind of believe without questioning yeah we've sort of moved here onto the subject of some some cultural differences and uh i was wondering you you mentioned in the book uh you spent a good bit of time talking about your uh, uh now former husband and your you know relationship in there and so on and you you mentioned that there were some uh irreconcilable uh, cultural differences. And so I was wondering, as long as we're on the, the subject of, uh, of of cultural differences, if you might, you know, amplify based on your experience, what, what do you see as really the most important kind of deep cultural differences between, say, us here in the in the States and, and folks in, in Ukraine or elsewhere in your experience? For me, and I don't know if it was cultural or if it was also just 
the timing he was raised because he had been raised still under Soviet times and then it collapsed while he was still young, but he had been raised under that where uh, he definitely had learned to kind of tell people what they want to hear. And, um, and the truth was a little more slippery for him on some things I, I found. And I think that was, it's hard to say culture or also just the system, how, how the system worked. I mean, there were just certain things, I guess the example is like, I, I didn't know, and we think of bribery as bad, but it was just how things worked if you needed things to get done. And I, I had no idea how you actually bribe someone, but I remember I was um, one of the, I, I had several hospital stays there because I was sick. And at one point, um, he, he was my uh, fiance at the time. He was saying, okay, well, you need to, uh, we need to give the doctor some money, but healthcare is free. So I didn't know how we pay when we don't, it's free. And so basically you're supposed to kind of, I guess it's a bribe. You give them money, but I'm like, well, do I just slip it in? How do I do this? But he was much more used, you know, it was just normal for him. So he knew how to do that. So he did that. But it was like, I remember um, when we were coming, he was coming to the US for the first time. And I told him because he used to speed all the time. I said, well, no, you, you can't, you, there's speed limits. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, you go a certain speed, you'll get a ticket if you go over it. And he said, oh, well, because he was a photographer. So he said, well, can I just take the policeman's picture? I make him a nice picture. I said, no, no, you get a ticket. And he said, oh, well, well, can I just give him money? I said, no, you get a ticket. And the rules, because he was used to in Ukraine, you get pulled over and you give your papers and you just put a little money in with your papers. And that's kind of takes care of it. And it goes, which I guess is kind of like paying, getting a ticket. You just, <laughs> you pay, decide right there what you're going to pay and pay it. But it's just this little things like that. The systems were so different, but if you're used to that, um, it just creates different understandings of basic things that I didn't really realize until we we tried to think about things. We just thought, um, approach things on, on very different levels. And I think also it was, um, we were both very young and it was his first time out of the country, but it was, you operated very differently there what was normal his normal was very different from my normal how you adjust to a system that doesn't work like that I think those were uh, in things like you know you didn't put money in a bank you you put money in a book of course that's safer than a bank and you just you keep it there or under the mattress or whatever but so this um those distrusts in the ways you you tell things to take care of yourself, how you had to adapt to take care of yourself, I think, um, was very foreign to me and, and was was difficult for him than when he came here. It was just very different systems. And so today, and so I don't know if we can say cultural because today some uh, a young person who wasn't raised under um, the Soviet system, I don't know if they would have that same thing, although the, the transition was difficult too, I don't know what comes from where. Yeah, going, going the other direction, I, I think uh, people might be interested in hearing from you. Just what, what were the things that, that you found most difficult to adjust to going to Eastern Europe back in the late 90s and early 2000s coming from uh, California? 
Yeah, I think it, it's hard to remember, but back then there actually, uh, internet, there wasn't much. I just, I think, learned how to email. And so it was very communication. I didn't communicate with people back home much at all. I had, I didn't have internet at home in Kiev, so I'd send an email maybe from work and, and um, phones were, uh, when I was in Kiev, my phone was bugged and it was a, it was difficult to get calls through uh, back home. So there was much more, that was hard for me. There was much more separation. Now I, I travel, I, I don't live abroad now, but I'll travel internationally. And it's just it's a lot easier now than it was then. Communication is just, you know, you can text someone and you can um, email almost instantaneously, get information. But it was the, the distance felt greater back then because uh, connectivity was not what it is today. So that was probably one of the big things. I think it was also a time there weren't a ton of, there, there more that time, there weren't a ton of Westerners in, there were more in certain areas, but it wasn't, and you get small pockets, but there weren't a ton of Westerners in Latvia or Ukraine. And so it, that was nice in some ways. I'd go outside the capitals and people would be kind of surprised to see an American and make a fuss over it. But it was also it, difficult in some ways um, because you were more alone, especially as a female. There were definitely more men going to Eastern Europe in that region than, than women. Uh, and so there, there was some loneliness there. And I think some of the other, for me, just being from California, so the weather was uh, definitely different for me and a struggle, especially Latvia, where winter, there's just not a lot of fun, and there's a lot of snow, and it stays for months on end, so that was different, um, and I think the understanding how the system works uh, was difficult. You uh to get a package, you'd go through like, you'd get a note, then you take the note to one office, and then that office would give you another note, you take to another office, and that go to another office, or to buy something, stores sometimes still operated with, you'd stand in one line, and you'd get a ticket, then you take that ticket to another line, and you'd pay some money, then, and they'd give you a receipt, then you'd take that receipt yet to another line, and finally, you would get what you were there to buy originally. And I, I joked how um, uh, communism would save everyone from consumerism because they just made it so difficult to get anything. <laughs> it was like it, the lack of things, it wasn't as much a problem because you didn't want to shop because it was so difficult. Um, and this was, you know, again, we're talking eight, nine years after the fall, but still the, this system and, and, and definitely... Uh, people always said they could tell I was American because I smiled. So there was um, a little still, I think that was hard for me that on the streets, people, Ukrainians have been very friendly once you're in their home and they know you, but sometimes on the streets could feel a little cold to me. People didn't smile at you like Americans will smile and just say hi to strangers, things like that. People definitely didn't do that back then. They'd kind of keep their heads down and, and their faces um, pretty just there weren't smiles uh people once said mark me as american or they they think you were a little slow or, or simple if you smiled all the time like i did it was something was wrong with you if you're smiling so 
I think that that actually was was difficult for me because I'm used to um, smiling. <laughs> and so once you got to know them, Ukrainians especially, very warm and would have you into your house and um, always offer you something to eat and drink. It was just kind of on the streets that there was just um, more distance. Now you're, uh, have you ever happened to read any of the short stories by uh, Mikhail uh, Zoshinko? Trying to the the, the, ba- the bathhouse. Uh, I don't know if that rings any bells. The uh, I, I bring it. I bring it up because of your your funny story about how hard it is to go to go shopping. Uh, and he's got this hilarious story about going to the going to the bathhouse, and uh, he's got to. Uh, uh, He's got a claim ticket for his clothes, but then he's supposed to take the claim ticket with him. He's like, "Where does a naked man put a claim ticket?" You know, and and it's it's if you've never read that story, it's it's hilarious. Uh, uh, I anything by him is good, but he's really good at spoofing exactly those kind of dynamics you were you were talking about, uh, which seem, as you said, to have survived well into the post-Soviet era. Yeah, no, I definitely have to. That sounds familiar, but I can't say. Um, but yeah, there. I think humor is one of the great things that came out of the Soviet system, actually. There was this um, dark humor that I find um, really, it's a way people survive, I guess, when things are totally absurd and don't make sense. Like, uh, like being given a claim ticket when you're nude um, that happened all the time. And so you do develop this great sense of humor and people have that still, which I, I appreciate that sense of humor. There's been some, some uh, pretty interesting academic work done on, on Soviet uh, jokes and humor uh, in, in recent years can kind of a, kind of a small uh, cottage industry. Uh, I wondered uh, we got about oh ten or fifteen minutes left here. I, I I wanted to get back to to some of the the events you observed happening on the ground there in, in the Ukraine back in the early two thousands. And um, yeah, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about you know that that murder journalist and the, the various political players and so on. Um, but what was your impression of of people on the ground? Like, did they have a sense that? There were good guys and bad guys. Did they did they have a you know a more cynical sense that everybody with power was was untrustworthy? Because you know it, it takes a certain amount of optimism to to get involved in a protest, right? Yeah, and I think it was interesting. Some of the younger people, a lot of the um, protesters, when they they would uh, do this camp where they'd actually sleep out in tents um, downtown in. Some of the younger ones, they were college age. I saw a lot of hope in them and, and thinking they really could change things. And so that was interesting. Um, I I'll, Then you would see, I think the older, usually the older ones were, I guess it makes sense anywhere you see that, but were more jaded and more scared, a lot more fear from them that uh, about what the government would do. So it was more younger ones that had that hope and less fear. They were willing to um, speak out and do those things because a lot of the older people and older, even just middle-aged and such, were still just too scared to voice things. And for a good reason, there were, um, I remember one story I did was there was a protest and then I'd gone home, I'd covered the protest, nothing really big had happened, but then 
later, um, I got a call from my editor saying she was hearing reports that pe- the protesters had later been beaten up and um, uh, were now in hospitals and things. And so then we went, uh, I went with um, the translator I was working with, Spieta, we went to some of the hospitals to try and see if this was true or not. And we couldn't get uh, people to talk to us um, because there were cards at the doors and things. Um, and then we finally got this one doctor who would say what he could tell us is um, that their wounds were consistent with having been beaten with baton, you know, like basically backing up that the, the, the injuries of this many people coming at this time with this were probably from batons. And, and at, at that point he said, um, you know, I'm going to be fired now. And I said, yeah, because I realized, you know, if he's telling us this stuff, he's losing his job. Um, and, and, and he kept talking. And so he just wanted us to know that, but he was willing to take that risk. But that was very rare because people knew what was going to happen if they were going to talk out. They were going to lose their job. And um, jobs were hard to come by. And so it was a big risk to take. So I think you wouldn't see... It was easier, I guess, when you're young, if you, you're a student and you don't have a job or a family or those responsibilities as much. And, and maybe you haven't experienced as much of the repression of under-Soviet times because you are younger still, that you were able to do that. But... Um, so there was a mix. There was that younger hopeful, and then there was the fear, and then the people who, even knowing the consequences, were willing to speak up. And then when I was there, there was kind of, the, with the group, there was the hopeful protesters, and then there was kind of the muscle group, which were kind of, I call them almost thugs, who kind of provided the, um, the they would be there with looking, um, walking around at night with baseball bats and things, and kind of protecting the area. And they there was an uneasy truce between these two groups because they both wanted the change, but one was much more nationalistic and um, militaristic, and the other was more uh, youthful, hopeful, academic university students. So even within protests, uh, you would see that. And then you would see some who would come during that time from other parts of Ukraine to take part in those protests and stay. It, it was kind of this camp. They were all camping out. Um, and they, usually it was more the people in Kiev, I think, who, who would start it, but you would see some come in from those other places. So I guess it wasn't, there were different factions within even the protesters. How, how do you think those different factions envisioned uh you know what they wanted to happen in the future, like when the when the the, the muscle bound nationalist crowd, as as you call it, there when they when they're envisioning what we want to happen, how how does that look, and how does that look different than the the, the more youthful set that you observed? At the time, the the muscle faction was a, definitely, I think, more nationalistic, really wanting almost. I don't know how to say it. Not democracy so much. Um, not, they had, they were less forward thinking, a little more backward thinking, not backward thinking, but wanting to return to a time of national greatness, maybe from uh, 
prior independence or something and more uh, less interested in, in fitting in with Western Europe or with the larger world in general, whereas the younger, um, more college student ones were more interested in, in fitting in with the West and being very progressive and being very democratic. And so I think it, there were really big differences there on the how they fit in with the world more. Um, the nationalistic ones a little more inward looking and, and the young ones more outward looking. But it, it was kind of hard to say because they were all just kind of their big thing was just getting rid of Kuchma, who was the president at the time, and, and the corruption and, and the brutality of protesting, you know, that this journalist had been, Gregory Gonkadze had been beheaded, and then the government had been implicated in that killing and was still denying it. So it was more focused on just getting rid of that. And you didn't know as much what their plans for were for after, but you did get this one hope that it was much more democratic and more western leaning and i think that's the problem with ukraine it's always got these push in these polls of the different players trying to gain traction in the country what's um what's your assessment then of that period uh, you know for with the, with the benefit of hindsight you know we're you know 15 years uh, or, or better since then i mean do you think have any of those groups' hopes been fulfilled uh, to some extent? Well, it's interesting because you got you got change, you got a new government, um, and then you, you got another one, and then it, it kind of that government there was still corruption kind of haunted it, and even the good guys then got involved with bad things, and then you got pressure from Russia again and pressure from the West, and I think there's just been no one's quite lived up to the hopes there's definitely been disappointment but there are there are some good signs um some of the youth especially now you've got youth who grew up uh post-soviet they they don't remember soviet times because they weren't alive then who are really trying to do something about the corruption and really trying to change the country and i think the problem is right now with all the politics we have going on on the u.s side where Ukraine's come in, we kind of are, are painting just the corruption in Ukraine. And yes, definitely it's there, but we don't look at the people who have made a lot of strides changing that and fighting that. And the younger people who are really trying to build a different kind of country. So I, I think there is still some hope there and there is, there has been some change and there will be more change. But I think it's a difficult situation. You've got, I mean, when I was there, you still had, um, Ukraine had Eastern Ukraine and had Crimea and now Russia has Crimea and Eastern Ukraine is a basically open battlefield. Uh, it's still being fought over. So, so much, um, has changed and the leadership is still being pulled between, you know, the U S and Russia are still using Ukraine in our politics and kind of, um, getting it involved in that and pulling it in. And I think that it's just a very difficult situation for the country. So we, we got time for about one more uh, good question here. And I, what I was wondering was, you know, your book is 
you know, chock full of really interesting stories, interesting people and so on. And so I thought maybe, uh, uh, what's, what's the best story that you looking back on that period, uh, that you haven't mentioned so far, one really fantastic person you ran into or one really wild event you, you saw firsthand, uh, I thought that might be a good way of closing our talk here. Yeah, let's see. Oh, so many. Um, well, we should talk about the retired ban- dancing bears of Bulgaria. <laughs> Not people, but they're <laughs> bears. And um, totally changing the subject. But that was, I had um, done a story about in Moldova and um, another journalist had asked me who was based in Bulgaria, an American had asked me some questions about that and I'd helped him out a little. So then he said, Oh, by the way, we have um, this retired bear sanctuary. That's it was having an anniversary or it was opening or something in Bulgaria. You want to come report about it? And so I thought, Oh, that's great. I'll just fly to Bulgaria and write about bears. And so ended up going and, uh, flying to uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, and then we went out to this sanctuary, and it was um, the actress Bridget Bardot, famous model and actress from a different era, had decided to uh, build a sanctuary for bears who had been, they have a chain in their nose, and then they're kind of made to, quote, dance, and for um, people get money from that and things, and usually it was more the Roma or what's sometimes called the gypsy community had um, used the, the dancing bears. And so she decided to give the owners of the dancing bears money so then they can give up their bears and then the bears bask in retirement. And we went to this village and the people are complaining that the bears in the village eat better than they do. There were um, broken windows on the schools, but the bears were getting watermelons and oranges. <laughs> and so it was this, this contrast. And then I think my favorite uh, quote, though, was when we, we interviewed one of the men who had given up his bear um, and gotten money for this. So, you know, they told him it was no good to have your bear dancing, animal cruelty, all these things. And so they gave him some money. And I said, well, so, so what did you do with the money? I said, about a monkey. <laughs> and now he's got a dancing <laughs> monkey. So it was, you know, uh, interesting how, how things played out, how you want them to figure and how, what happens in reality. So it was, it was kind of a fun little story, but it also, it, it showed deeper cultural things too, even within the story, just about dancing bears. It was fascinating, the dynamics, um, uh, of that. And I, I don't know, it's been a while now. I wonder if the sanctuary is still there and if the, the bears are still having their, their retirement. Still eating the watermelon. Yeah. Yeah. As, as one of the villagers said, it would be better to be a bear in this village than a human. <laughs> so what, uh, maybe the last thing here, uh, what are you working on next? I think I'm working on a, another nonfiction about um, juvenile psychiatric institutions but i'm not sure how it's going but that that was kind of what was interesting to me right now and we'll see how it pans out well that should be a good uh, a good read your book here was certainly full of good stories so i'm sure that one will be too thank you yeah well, well thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, uh, chat uh, with us about your book appreciate your time thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure You bet. Bye now.